Hey, Kyle, love your podcast. Check out these Earthship homes. They're made out of 100% recycled material, 100% off the grid. They recycle all their water. It's amazing. It's the plan for the future. Peace and love. Yeah, Jeremy. Thank you for sending that in. I'm a big fan of tiny homes. I am coming to you from a tiny home of sorts. It's a tiny home on wheels. She's a 1997 Ford RV, and her name is Starflight. And right now we are in Idaho Falls, coming south from Montana, where I've been spending uh, the last month backpacking, hunting, writing, and recording podcasts. So Manu and I did this one remotely. He was in Santa Cruz at the time. And this is not the first time he's been on the show. He was a guest back in episode number 188. So if you want to hear more from him, go back there and you can learn more about him. He's an interesting dude. Uh, He's a Santa Cruz local, Stanford graduate, highly strategic thinker. And I'm a fan of him. I believe that... As a country, we put far too much emphasis on national politics and not nearly enough on local politics. Um, Not enough of us, myself included, know enough about the elected officials in our neighborhood. Yet, they wield massive influence over our lives. The budgets that they hold, the decisions that they make impact you. And if if you're in a place like Santa Cruz, right, it's a small enough community that you and a few buddies can get together and swing an election, right? It's not like national politics, right? If you're coming if you're in California right now, I hate to say it, but your vote for the president does not matter because it's going to go blue, and we live in a winner-take-all system, and all of those votes, uh, all of the, the elector, uh, electoral college votes will go blue, right? So, like, okay, you can, you can scream and shout about the presidency, but hate to break it to you, um, it might be more intelligent to focus on local elections. And I, I really like Manu. Um, I, th- I think that Santa Cruz is, um, it is ripe for new young minds to take the reins. Um, there are a lot of old policies that are really, um, negatively impacting young people in Santa Cruz, my age. Uh, in this episode, we talk a lot about housing crisis um, talk about transportation, we talk about the fires, and Manu breaks it down. So I was really happy to have him on the show, and he has my endorsement for the upcoming election in November. Before we get this one going, I want to send a huge thank you to RPM Training Company for supporting this podcast. As many of you know, I've been on the road for the last four months. Um, <clears throat> first, I was in a Subaru, a fucking... Forrester Subaru. Her name's Jody Forrester. And we were sleeping together, sleeping out of the back of her, and it was it was rough. Not gonna lie. Uh big thank you to all the people who let me crash on their couches. 
And traveling can be a chaotic experience. And I really enjoy a certain amount of routine in my life. And one of the routines that I've kept with me for this trip is a morning workout. And it's no longer than 20 minutes. And with me, I use an RPM jump rope, a kettlebell, and a little yoga mat. All right. Um, and these, these jump ropes are just so well made. And I swear, you, if, you learn, if you jump rope and you do even five minutes of double unders, you will be gassed. It will increase your cardio and it will allow you to say yes to the adventures when they come up. All right. Like, yeah, working out, it puts me in a better mood, makes me stoked. I'm not really that psyched on it. Like, I like going surfing and hunting and hiking. But those activities take a lot of, of endurance and cardio. And if you're not ready for that, you're going to get smoked, all right? So I recommend incorporating jump rope into your morning routine. And you can get 10% off any jump rope at RPM Training Company by typing in the code name KYLE10. And I'll link to it below, all right? So get your jump rope, and I promise it will make your life better, all right? Shut up. No excuses. Go get it. Thank you also, as always, to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring each and every one of these podcasts. We got some Santa Cruz companies on this show, guys. I'm proud of my sponsors. I got to say, RPM is based right in Los Gatos. They got a badass gym. Santa Cruz Medicinals. SC company and they've sponsored this company this this podcast forever um they make cbd that i use before i go to bed they make a little tincture i just put a few drops of it on my tongue and bam i'm out and if you're interested you can get um cbd and join my book club by just heading over to my website kyle.surf and uh each month i'll ship you a book and some Sa and santa cruz medicinals cbd tincture at a discount so if you like this podcast and if you want to read more, head over to my website, kyle.surf slash book club. This month, September, the book is The Way of the Superior Man. Blew my mind, and uh, I think that for any men looking to understand women better um, or any women, I think it would be helpful also for women, this book, The Way of the Superior Man, to, to see... Uh, behavior from the opposite sex's eyes. Um, I don't know. I hope it'd be helpful, but I enjoyed the book. I hope you do too. And finally, thank you so much to the Nell Newman Foundation for sponsoring this podcast. Nell Newman is a badass. She supported the comedy activism show, the Motherfucker Awards, two years in a row. She's now supporting this podcast. And in each one of these ads, I get to highlight a great organization encouraging you to volunteer. All right. So one of the organizations that the Nell Newman Foundation supports is the Alaska Marine Conservation Council. All right. The Alaska Marine Conservation Council works to protect and promote the integrity of Alaska's marine ecosystems and the health of ocean dependent communities. So if you are up in Alaska and you want to volunteer with them, check them out. I'll link to them below. And just generally, volunteer more all right we, we we need to get involved as citizens i believe uh if we want this country to not fracture into a million little pieces 
And a lot of times that means getting involved with your community. The Alaska Marine Conservation uh, Council is just one example of this, but there are plenty in a neighborhood near you. Without further preamble, I'm going to go jump in the river here in Idaho, upload this podcast, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Manu Koenig. I am uh, live from Santa Cruz County. Yeah, yeah. How has it been there? Um, the last couple weeks, we have seen uh, some of the most serious fires we've had in our um, city's history. What's it been like to be there and deal with it? Um, you know, from your perspective, coming in uh, to, as a potential, potentially um, as a political uh, candidate. You know, it's it's trying times yeah. in our community. It's it's uh, it's very trying times. You know, uh, it was really scary. Um, you know, this last week was at least this, the winds changed, and so the smoke uh, cleared a little bit, and we had a little more blue sky. The week before that, uh, you know, ash was falling every day, um, and it was uh, hard to breathe. The air quality was really bad, um, and you know, it was just downright terrifying. I mean, a, a third of our county evacuated. And, um, you know, unfortunately, there's a, a lot of people living in trailers today here um, in, in the county. And, um, you know, you can see it at the Seventh-day Adventist camp at Old San Jose Road. Uh, you can see it at the Cabrillo parking lots. You can see it at all the official evacuation centers, uh, the Civic Auditorium downtown, uh, Simpkins Swim Center. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's been a major hit to our, our community. Um, and uh, it's been also inspiring to see people really come together and, and get the resources needed to help everyone. Yeah. You grew up in Santa Cruz, right on Seabright. Was this like nothing you had ever seen before? Uh, definitely. And so so I was born on Seabright and lived there till I was two. Um, and then um, we actually, my parents moved to the Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, so this was really close to home. Um, we evacuated during the summit fire back in 2008. And, uh, you know, at that point, I thought for sure our house was, was going to be burned down. Um, so very familiar with uh, with the challenges of living in a wildfire area. Um, you know, what? what's crazy um, is just that Santa Cruz County actually has more people living in the high highest risk areas, wildland urban interface, it's a technical term, uh, as of any county in the state. Wow. Yeah, so it's high. You know, we all know California is a high risk uh, in general for wildfires, but Santa Cruz County is actually the highest. Most people living in the highest risk areas. And we've managed to avoid it largely over the last few years when places like L.A. and uh, Paradise up north were getting hit really hard. This is really the first time mm -hmm. that Santa Cruz has seen the the full um, kind of wrath of California fires. Yeah, this is um, this is the biggest fire in a very long time. So, as um, coming in to the position of district supervisor, housing is one of the issues that you are tasked with taking on. How has this fire um, made you think 
you know, differently about housing in Santa Cruz, if at all? Um, what's your position on it now, generally? Well, you know, there's a saying: don't don't miss a uh, never miss the opportunity of a crisis. And so, as tragic as it is that um, you know over 500 homes have been lost and still counting, um, we have an opportunity here in that you know. I believe all those homes were in the unincorporated county, which means the county is going to be processing the permits to get them rebuilt. And um, our today, our county planning department is terrible. I mean, you can't even build a doghouse in this county. Um, it's three times takes three times as long and costs three times as much as, as pretty much any neighboring jurisdiction. And so, what we have here with with all these folks who need to rebuild, um, we have an opportunity to have to create a more streamlined process. I mean, it's just the humane thing to do. And uh, as we do that and process all the applications for folks uh, who've had their homes destroyed, um, then hopefully we can set that up as a new normal and apply it to everyone else who uh, is, is just trying to build an extra bedroom for their kids or, or get something built in the county as well. So. Hopefully, uh, we use this opportunity to create a better process and, and then apply it going forward. What are the major problems with housing that we're seeing in Santa Cruz County um, right now for people that don't really understand this issue? Could you just take a step back and, and um, talk about what you see as the major um, kind of ki uh, kinks in the system and things that you're hoping to work out? Sure. So uh, fundamentally, uh, you know, Santa Cruz County is one of the most expensive places to live in the world. It's uh, the fifth most expensive place in in, uh, in the world uh, by some counts. And so, you know, what that means, you know, from from my perspective, from from, from anyone's perspective, is just, you know, easily more than a 30 year income is going to rent. Right. I mean, over half the people that rent in our county are rent burdened. And uh, I mean, we know what that feels like. It's like, you get paid one day and the next day it feels like it's all gone and you barely have enough money to, to buy groceries for the rest of the month. Um, so it, it really shouldn't be that way. Um, and not to mention, you know, the biggest difference between rich and poor today is home ownership, right? I mean, it's basically, are you taking that huge chunk of money and, uh, you know, burning it, you know, for, for lack of a better word, and just to stay in place, just to, Keep uh, keep working, or are you saving it and building uh, building your assets and building your your total uh, net value, your nest egg, and, and all that? And so it really is the biggest uh, divider between rich and poor is is whether or not you have an opportunity to own a house. And you know that the average home price in mid county today is over nine hundred and thirty thousand dollars. So. What that means is, you know, the, the normal down payment is is uh, about twenty percent of the home cost. So you're looking at over one hundred and eighty thousand dollars in cash that you need to buy a home today. Uh, that's a lot of money. I mean, I have friends who are fortunate enough to work for Looker, right? Which recently sold to Google, and so all those guys got a little bit of of money from selling their stock options uh, or with the with the Google purchase and. Uh, and they still can't buy homes, right? Because what's happening today with COVID is you have pretty much, um, first of all, not a lot of people are selling. Uh, so it's very limited inventory. There's very limited inventory in the county in general. Um, and then every time a home comes up, well, 
everyone who uh, has any means in Silicon Valley, and that's a fair number of people, want to get want to get out. They want to come here. And so we are seeing uh, one of the most competitive real estate markets in a long time here, where you're getting multiple offers on every home. Uh, the the this final sales price is going to is ten to thirty percent over the listing price. Um, and so as hard as it was before to, to buy a home, uh, it's even harder now. Right. Last time we spoke, you um, you identified yourself as more of a centrist, and we spoke about uh, rent control, and you talked about how rent control puts some bad incentives at play and that you could potentially put a few more intelligent incentives in that could um, tackle this problem in a more intelligent way. Can you talk a little bit more about that strategy? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think uh, the reason, uh, you know, just to revisit, like, um, the, the, the reason rent control is problematic is it's sort of allowing, it doesn't apply to everyone, uh, even all rentals, um, because of a state law called Costa-Hawkins, it only applies to about 25% of inventory, it can't apply to single family homes. So if you're renting a bedroom uh, in, in a house with some friends, it, rent control wouldn't apply to you. Uh, if you're living in a newer apartment building, it doesn't apply to you. And so um, the problem there is that if we pass rent control, only folks living in kind of middle, you know, mid, mid age apartment buildings would see the benefit and everyone else. Well, actually, their rental and rent cost of their rental might go up because now there's even less inventory and people are com competing for that. Um, and moreover, you see um, that it, it basically just adds costs for landlords which means they're going to be inclined to, you know, especially in today, the real estate market we just talked about today, sell their homes. And now it's going to go from being a rental uh, to a single family home folks live in, and we're take, actually taking rental inventory off the market. So, um, you know, the, the best thing to do is just help everyone uh, create more homes uh, and more, more rooms. And um, that's where it really comes down to, you know, Anyone who's trying to do that work, who's trying to add a accessory dwelling unit or, you know, let a friend park their tiny home on their property, all of that stuff ultimately goes through, you guessed it, the county. And so county government plays a huge role in, um, in just making it easier for people to create those new home opportunities. And, um, and so as we're kind of talking about with FIRE, uh, streamlining the permitting process um, is is so critical to to creating that those uh, new home opportunities. And I'll, I'll just give you one shocking story here about the state currently. Um, I have an architect, a friend who is an architect, um, and you know she's like, well, the county says we're making it easier to build ADUs, right? That's the that's the top line. Um, but I've been working on trying to build an ADU uh, in Aptos for over a year and a half since since March of 2019 and haven't been able to get it approved because the county's actually lost its ability to approve uh, new septic systems uh, because it didn't get an application into the state in a timely way. And so the state said, sorry, you can't process these now. We're going to do it. And there's an eight month delay there. So and that's happened two years in a row. So the county is just not doing its job. Uh, literally you know, failing even by the state standards um, to, 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 you know, be able to uh, approve septic systems and which, you know, sort of a key part of any house. 
right? Last time we spoke, um, you were talking about the role of district supervisor and how, you know, when people go to uh, vote, a lot of times they'll just vote for the same guy that has already been the district supervisor because there's no term limit, there's name recognition there, and most people don't really understand the power that that position holds. Um, can you just talk briefly about what district supervisor is and specifically when it comes to this ADU housing crisis, um, the mechanisms that a district supervisor can pull to help streamline that process? Yeah, great question. So uh, a county supervisor is kind of like if you took uh, the legislature, right, the Senate and the House uh, and the executive branch or the president and you smush them together and then there were five divided by five. So there's five county supervisors and they have the power, both of an executive. So to approve or uh, disapprove to de decline any spending measure in the county, bu county budget. I mean, um, from, from approving uh, a new mural at a bathroom to a new salary for a position, um, you name it. At some point it goes across the, the county supervisor's desk. Um, and, they, and they vote on it out of five, out of, uh, all five of them vote on it. A three person majority can pass or, or uh, reject something. So there's the spending piece. And then there's also the, uh, the law piece, right? Writing new laws for the county. Um, and, uh, you know, only once it only takes one supervisor to propose to the group something new. And so, uh, and then it takes the majority to pass it. Um, so really both of those elements are, um, in the, the tool set for dealing with affordable housing, um, you know, to get to this issue of the County, I think there needs to be more accountability for County planning right now. There's no, like you could go in there and be like, Hey, I want to build an ADU and they can't tell you for sure how much, how, how much it's going to cost and how long it's going to take. Sure. They might be able to say like what the permit fees for like planning is, but they, you know, environmental health and public works. And like, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's just, it, it takes different departments throughout the county. They're not working together. Um, so from a budgetary perspective, you could put in certain requirements around, you know, the planning department shall process applications within this time period for ADUs uh, or else it would lead to uh, you know, th these kind of budget cuts for the department. You know, that's a very basic example. Um, and then on the, on the ordinance side, um, you could do things like uh, say that now tiny houses can be used as ADUs, right? That's something that uh, tiny houses on wheels. That's something that they did in Santa Clara County. Uh, pretty easy copy and paste there. Um, and you know, of course, we have lots of lots of folks our age, lots of uh, some some mutual friends that are looking at tiny houses. Is pretty much the only way uh, to kind of have some incremental home ownership. And um, we absolutely should approve them as ADUs. Um, and so that would be a, an, an ordinance or a change in the law. Right. One issue um, that people are facing right now with fires, you know, is that because this process of getting, say, an ADU permitted is so difficult, a lot of people in Santa Cruz will just build illegally. Um, mm -hmm. And then it makes it difficult to get insured. So, you know, there are people who have lost their homes or, or separate buildings that they've put their heart and souls into 
in the redwoods, but they could never get that permitting process approved and it's now not insured and they have nothing. So you see the consequences of um, that kind of bureaucracy, bureaucracy play out during a crisis. That's a really great point. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like, do you take the risk or deal with maddening county bureaucracy? And, uh, you know, my friend, he um, he's an electrician. And so he and he's got a he needed a big workshop on his property uh, up in Felton and uh, also a place for all his fun toys. And they basically ordered a, uh, you know, a re- kind of ready made garage structure online for sixteen thousand dollars that comes with installation by working with the county it cost over a hundred thousand dollars by the time they'd done all the soil work and drainage work and everything else and it that's completely unacceptable i mean of course people are going to be building illegally and um so uh, we really need to take the opposite approach when it comes to county government instead of being like oh well we're a monopoly provider and you're going to have to pay us as much money as we ask for and we'll say it'll be done when we say it's done to almost kind of more like a tech approach right where this hey you know free trial you sign, you can sign up for free we'll give you what you need to get started and uh you know when you like the service we'll it'll bump you up to premium all right that's that's how so many tech business models are, are work today we should be doing the same thing with the county let's reduce or eliminate permit fees as much as possible because guess what when you're done with your project that adds value to your property it's going to be reassessed for your property taxes and actually long term the county does make money uh, because now you're, when your property is worth more Right. You mentioned Santa Clara County uh, approving tiny homes as ADUs. Are you looking for a, at any other shining examples in other areas around um, housing solutions? Yeah. So in San Diego County, they have um, sort of a, a menu of ADU designs that are already approved. So they don't need to be reapproved by the county planning. You just select it and uh, you're ready to drop it in. Um, you know, the permit permitting all happens really quickly. Um, so that's a great example. Um, then, I mean, some of the bigger stuff is, is just, um, we going to have to make better use of our land area in the urban area in the County. I mean, you can really see, uh, you know, people talk about, uh, climate justice, you know, environmental justice. Wow. Did we ever see that with the fires? Right. I mean, some of the only affordable housing left today is out in the mountain areas in San Lorenzo Valley. Um, and so, for example, uh, Santa Cruz County or, or city of Santa Cruz schools had to shut down because so many of their teachers live out in uh, the area that had to evacuate. And so we need to build more of that affordable housing in the urban area where it is safer. Um, so that uh, just as, you know, for for climate justice, so that as things do continue to become uncertain and risk increases, um, that uh, people have defensible homes. Right. So so to get back to your question, um, another example that we're seeing of great policy out there is um, like in San Francisco or Buffalo, New York, they've actually... uh, eliminated parking requirements. So instead of requiring two parking spaces for every apartment unit, you say you can have only you, you can have a maximum of say one space. And that really shifts, you know, 
the goal within the urban area to housing people instead of housing cars. Right. So that's vital. Which gets us right into transportation. One of the issues that you have been talking about through your campaign is uh, the rail trail. Santa Cruz has a corridor that goes through it with a derelict train track. Um, so I'll d- you know, there is an argument for the train, which is that, hey, Santa Cruz is so uh, unaffordable, we actually need to ship people in from places like Salinas to work at our restaurants and support this tourist industry. Because, you know, I have plenty of friends who work in restaurants but can't afford to live in Santa Cruz. So it's like, hey, we love this spot, but I got to drive for 45 minutes or an hour through crazy traffic from uh you know salinas or or um aptos just to go work at my job at at suda restaurant or the crow's nest to support this industry of tourists coming in which is where santa cruz gets a ton of its money from so it's this that is an argument that i've heard from people who want to put this uh train in place um how would you respond to that well, first, I'd say, you know, absolutely, like traffic burden is huge, right? I mean, we see it affects people's health, uh, it even affects people's marriages, right? I believe the stat is that, uh, you know, you're twice as likely to get divorced if you um, have a commute of over 45 minutes, one spouse or another. Holy um, shit. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty serious. And uh, it affects your health, you know, Um you increase likelihood of obesity or other health issues. So, um, yeah, th- we have to do something about uh, the the traffic problem for sure. Um, and I, I certainly sympathize with people around, you know, the joy of trains. I, I love public transit, ride Caltrans, uh, uh, Caltrain a lot over the hill, um, BART. But what we love about those systems uh, is when is, is when they're running frequently, <laughs> Right. Like think about your own experience going down to the train platform uh, for, to BART. And if it says next BART, two minutes, you know, sweet. That's great. Uh, if it says next train, 16 minutes, that's kind of a bummer. And you might you might think about either going to get a jump bike or an Uber or doing something else next time. So the big problem with the, the rail line here is it's only one directional. I mean, can you imagine if Caltrain could only run in one direction at a time um, or, you know, you had to like it could only trains could only pass in a couple of places. Um, it's an old freight line. It was it was never designed for uh, high frequency public transit. And so and yet it would still cost, a, you know, over a billion dollars to build and maintain. So that's the issue I see there is it's just it's not that, um, you know, public transit's not desirable. It's that we just can't build good public transit on that uh, corridor, at least not in a train form. Um, So I ultimately believe we should do uh, the most flexible thing possible. And I also, I ultimately am going to let give this, uh, let people vote on this because I believe in uh, the wisdom of voters uh, in making the best decision on this. So um, I'm going to bring it to a vote in 2022 and um that this will is it provide... this is if if you get elected yes right and uh and that'll be a great definitive turning point in our county one way or another right uh. um 
there was already $10 million that was put into this rail line. So there are some incentives at play for certain uh, politicians in the county to move forward with this. Can you just explain that argument and the money involved that's already behind this project? There's, uh, there's, yeah, the state gave us $10 million to build a train. They also just gave uh, Monterey County $11 million to build a greenway at Fort Ord. So the idea that we need to, like, you know, hold on to this plan as tight fist as possible um, and, and look at spending, you know, uh, tens of millions of dollars in the immediate future just to repair the rail line, uh, you know, hundreds of millions and ultimately over a billion dollars to build the train. Um, you know, this is a real clear example of, you know, pay back that $10 million to save a billion dollars. It's, it's, <laughs> it's kind of a no-brainer, in my opinion. But again, we'll let people vote on this. Um, and it's perfectly possible to, to, to find other sources of funding, even, you know, even in the state budget, uh, to make up for the money that we have to give back. Got it. So how has the campaign been going since we last spoke? So I had you on the podcast when the primary vote was coming up. Mm-hmm. And give me a little window into your world since uh, from now until then. For sure. I thought you were going to start with this question. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, the, no, the it, fires were immediate. So fires are I, immediate, I, wanted to, I, I wanted to talk about that first. Yeah. And we should still talk about some of the grand jury stuff on fire. Um, but uh, the campaign has been going really well. Um, you know, the primary results were basically clear in that the majority of voters that turned out um, voted effectively against the incumbent, right? That's why there's a runoff, is that no one got a majority of the votes. And uh, even my opponent, who's been in office for 12 years, couldn't put together a simple majority. And what happened after that um, was that the, the next three finishers after myself all endorsed me. And collectively, we had uh, if you add up all our percentages, 51.2% of the vote. So that's a great place to start from, right? It means if we could just hold that uh, and, and get the same percentage of people who turn out um, for the general election, this, you know, coming right up here on November 3rd, but people are going to get their ballots October 5th, um, if we can just hold that 51.2%, we win. Great. Um, but of course, we're not making any assumptions, and we've been working our butts off. Um, you know, I thought I would uh, have an opportunity to, to go back to my day job, and I have basically not. Um, you know, it's been I've been working on this full time, pretty much all year now. So it's just insane how much how much work it takes um, to do this, and to just become fluent on all the county issues, continuing to have meetings with folks. Um, you know. Last uh, just last week, uh, I met with a number of key healthcare folks, um, Larry Digitaldi of uh, Sutter Pamph and um, Laura Marcus of Gientes. And, um, you know, just learn, for example, one key thing they taught me was that um, Medicare reimbursement rates are really different depending on what um, where where you get the service. So the county actually gets three hundred and fifty dollars an hour if someone is treated in a county facility but like. Dominican only gets 50 bucks an hour. So anyway, we could talk about that as far as healthcare goes. Um, 
why it's so important that the county do some of this outreach to the homeless population and service their healthcare needs in county facilities is, is those, uh, you get reimbursed a lot more. Um, so got to continue to learn about every issue. Um, and, and what we've really done is just build a re built a really great campaign organization. So, you know, when I look back to the primary where it was seemed like it was like me and a few, uh, close friends and helpers making the whole thing happen and de delivering every other yard sign this time around. I mean, there are like probably close to a hundred people, uh, working on any given day, distributing signs, calling folks, um, you know, helping, uh, get, uh, get event, put, put events together, digital events. Um, so I'm feeling really good. We've got a, we've got a great team. And um, you know, to your point earlier about what does a county supervisor even do, the big uh, the big challenge now is just making sure people are aware of this election and why we need change. I was very unaware of what a county supervisor does. I was born and raised in Santa Cruz, and what really piqued my interest was when you sat down with me and you said, "I control an eight hundred and thirty million dollar budget." And a $340 million health and human services budget. Yeah. I was like, what? Yeah, like, it's, up to, wow. it's up to $870 million now. And is the $340 included in that, or is that a separate budget? That's included in okay. that. Um, yeah, this is the short answer. A lot of it comes directly from the state or federal government, though. Right. So how is that money being... In your mind, how is that money being mismanaged? Because it's it's taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. uh, how is our money in in your mind being mismanaged right now? And how is uh, w how would you be spending it differently? Mm -hmm. I think the the easy answer is we're just not investing uh, in more capacity. We're not investing in what we need. So for homelessness, we're not building enough homes. Uh, we you know the an example we on top of that budget we also get special money all the time and so last year the county got ten and a half million dollars from the state to address homelessness and we didn't build a single home we spent it on 22 different housing coordinators to help people find housing but they're all having a really tough time and the effective cost of helping someone to find a home today is is uh, somewhere between 16 and 19 thousand dollars Meanwhile, just, we just to help just, someone find, just, just to help someone find them. Find that's right. Home. That's right. Just to place them. That's you know staff costs, uh, intermediate housing for them. Um, so we could just be you know. Meanwhile, the cost of a pallet shelter or some of these tiny homes is is like five to ten thousand dollars. So we could house two people <laughs> if we just invested in the housing infrastructure. So regarding homelessness and, and housing, this is a very touchy issue because there's a, a lot of nimbyism around mm -hmm. it. People don't want drug addicts in their neighborhood. Homelessness is a huge issue in Santa Cruz generally, as well as, as drug addiction. Um, the way that I, I really try and see it from a more systemic and psychological perspective rather than the dude who stole my fucking bike perspective, because I think yeah. that that can lead to a lot of apathy. And I know that having a place to put your stuff 
as a homeless person, having some kind of roof over your head can be the first rung on a ladder that can get you out of that culture of homelessness. One of the yes. problems that I see is, you know, in downtown Santa Cruz, there's a, really a culture of living on the streets. And mm -hmm. we know this about human psychology. We will make decisions based off of feeling like we are ba based off of an identity that we hold. So if you can give people an someone an identity of at least having a roof over their head, it can mm -hmm. be a really important first step. Um, have you seen any stories around, you know, in other places of homeless housing that have been really successful? Um, and, and how could you ensure that this wouldn't just, you know, turn into some kind of slum uh, mm -hmm. that would ultimately degrade Santa Cruz? That's, those are great questions. And, uh, you know, I just I think you really hit the nail on the head, uh, first of all, in terms of you know, the psychological cost on to people of not being able to have just a place to make sure their stuff is safe. I mean, this is why the, the housing first model has worked in so many places is, you know, I know if I was out on the streets and, uh, you know, sleeping on the hard ground every night and not sure where I was going to put my stuff, you know, dealing with people in various mental conditions, right? A lot of folks on the streets are suffering from mental illness or, um, you name it, like, I, I'd probably turn to drugs, too. I mean, I would definitely need a drink or two to get me through the day and, and probably just about anything else I could get my hands on. And so that's why when you're looking at helping people to turn their lives around, it really does just start with a place just that, that they feel safe. Um, and then, you know, you also brought up this great point about a sense of identity, um, which is, you know, uh, not only just have someone who has a place, but also someone who can be productive and help others, right? I think if you look at like all of our, our deepest needs, uh, it really comes back to being valuable and v valued by other people and friends and being able to help other folk. Um, and so that's why some of the most successful programs here in Santa Cruz are ones that give people work to do where they find a sense of value again. So the downtown streets team or the homeless garden project, um, and, and another example to go back to fire is, um, is the uh, Cal fire program that, that put inmates to work, um, clearing brush and making fire breaks and stuff. Um, yeah, I, I visited the downtown streets team and one of the group leaders there said, you know, I finally have goals doing this. I never used to have goals. And now, you know, they come in every week, they talk about other jobs that are open in the community, whether it's at Trader Joe's or at a bike shop. Uh, I can see myself working in those positions. Um, I've moved up the ranks in this group um, and and feel like I'm, I'm getting somewhere. And, um, and yeah, it, you know, and, and other people are just like, you know, I like cleaning stuff. I like making things clean. And right, I mean, here from the outside view, some of us are, so many people are inclined to say, oh, you know, homeless people are just making everything dirty. And in reality, there's like a deep desire there and many of, of them to to make things clean. Um, so those are the essential elements, housing and work. And when you look at the programs that have been most successful, um, you know, I think we talked about this last time, but um, like Community First Village in Austin, Texas. Um, it's, they, they give people a tiny home to live in 
and then uh, connect them with a work opportunity, whether it's working at the machine shop or in the kitchen uh, to be, you know get some culinary skills or in the garden. And you know, to your question on how do they, how do you keep it from becoming a slum? Um, I think it's 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 that it's giving people purpose, um, and it's also that those aren't the only people living there too. There's a lot of folks that voluntarily live in that community because uh, they want to help people with those training programs. Uh, they even have some Airbnbs, to my understanding, in that community, and so folks kind of do. You know, they, they see it as missionary work or something. That's actually a religious group that manages that that or um, uh, that location, and so people will come there um, and uh, and just help out. And so I think you know, if you look a- anywhere um, in the world, it's really diverse communities that are the strongest. And um, and so you want to inter- have make sure that any of these communities are are have some of that diversity. Um, so that people have positive role models and uh, have just a good overall environment to to live and work in. Hmm. What are the programs that you are seeing, or I'll I'll ask this differently, the issue that we have right now in Santa Cruz is that a lot of homeless people go into Dominican night after night. I have Mm -hmm. many friends who are firefighters, and they know homeless people by first name because they pick them up so often and many times it's just to get a warm place to sleep every night and it's this Mm -hmm. very expensive cycle of drug addiction and then filling up our hospital beds and then back onto the streets and then back into it Um, you've talked about building a um an actual center that could help cut back on that influx into hospitals can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and good point. You know, I've talked to the uh, the ER or the um, EMT drivers and uh, ambulance drivers as well, who are just like, oh my god, I'm so sick of it. It feels like every day I go into work and just get beat up by these people, and uh, and you know, their their sense of compassion is challenged because they're dealing with just the. the day in, day out, all the people I mean, that, that use our health services really as primary care. I mean, it's crazy. 30% of uh, folks in the homeless census cited the emergency room as their primary source of care. And what that does is, I mean, not only is it inefficient from the hospital standpoint and difficult, it drives up costs for everyone. Um, you know, the even if you just look at the the Medicare and Medi-Cal budget in our county, like eight, right now, eight percent of patients use. Uh, oh God, I, th- I think I want to say it's at least seventy-five percent of the costs. Um, and then to uh, my point earlier, it's really inefficient to treat people at uh, Dominican because Dominican's not getting reimbursed by uh, Medicare and Medi-Cal at the same rate that the county would be, right? The Dominican gets 50 bucks an hour for every every, uh, hour that they're they're treating uh, a person on government insurance. The county gets $350 an hour. I mean, this is just a no-brainer, right? Get people in four walls owned by the county in order to, to address their health needs. And the most obvious place to do this is our old county hospital, which is the Emmeline complex. And 
Uh, today, a lot of it has been turned into administrative offices, and we should look at turning those back into patient rooms. We should be looking at putting the housing that we just talked about, pallet homes or tiny homes, uh, on some of the parking lots there. Um, there's there's another six-acre lot adjacent to that site that could also be used. Um, so let's put the housing there and then have uh, a variety of services available to people um, at at the uh, Emmeline complex as well that we can get properly reimbursed for. That's amazing that you're making 50 bucks versus 350, depending on where that person is coming in. And and exactly. for people who don't know, the, like, Emmeline and Dominican are like two miles away. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And so this is this also um, brings up the need for an additional service that's been talked about. It's like kind of an emergency medical response team, right? Um, the CAHOOTS program in Oregon is often often referenced for having started something like this, where if you call 911 and it's because it's a mental health emergency um, or some other uh, emergency related to um, you know, homelessness in many cases, um, there's a spe- they can route that number to a special team um, that's specifically trained in that instead of to the sheriff, for example, or the police who probably are not the best uh, folks to deal with that. And so if we send out some uh, you know, county health workers there, we can hopefully get someone to a county treatment facility uh, and not only save, you know, we save money in terms of the sheriff's time, and then we make more money in terms of the reimbursement rate as we, as we help those people. Right. When it comes to drug addiction itself, would that center uh, help treat drug addicted folks? How do you get people... You know, it's it's hard to get off heroin. How do you uh, mm-hmm. answer those questions? Yeah, I, you know, it's I don't know if it happens at the same facility or somewhere else. Um, you know, the county has a variety of uh, of properties. Um, you know, whether it's the Roundtree Medium Security um, Jail down in Buena Vista area, South County, um, maybe that could be expanded for more drug treatment. Um, you know, I. I hate to say it, but in some cases, uh, like from what I've seen, um, incarcerated models of drug treatment um, do seem to work the best. Uh, I mean, these programs are hard, right? Uh, And so it helps to kind of be stuck in one place. Um, So like Rhode Island has a really robust program where they, you know, for if you're addicted to heroin, um, you know, they help you get on to... um, methadone, for example, as an alternative. And then um, once you get out on probation, they just make it as seamless as possible to be able to keep getting your meds. It's something we don't do good here, right? It's not a seamless handoff. And um, and people kind of just get lost. They, they start to feel a physical craving and they'll get, you know, they'll serve that however they can. Whereas in Rhode Island, they make sure they basically take you to the place where you'll be able to get your methadone going forward, um, make sure that that those centers are open 24-7 um, and that you just have an easy, uh, no-barrier solution there to, um, to, to getting the treatment you need. You might not have an answer to this um, as it's sort of unrelated, but um, I'm wondering, does the – District supervisor have any play in drug laws? Um, you know, over the last thirty years, we have 
really created an insane um, legal system categorizing different drugs. For example, psychedelics are in many places still considered a Schedule One drug and can get you the same amount of time in prison as heroin. Uh, Oakland recently decriminalized psychedelic mushrooms. Does the district supervisor have any role in those kinds of laws? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, you gave the perfect example there, which is uh, decriminalization of psychedelics. Um, you know, we we did the same thing here in Santa Cruz County with uh, with cannabis, for starters. We sort of made it the lowest priority for law enforcement um, to, you know, to find, uh, to arrest someone smoking cannabis on the street. So lowest priority means if an officer or uh, you know, a sheriff's deputy sees someone jaywalking and on one side to their right and to their left, they see someone smoking a joint, they got to go address the person jaywalking, right? Um, and so, and that's kind of the same approach that's being taken with uh, psychedelics today. Um, and so, yes, the county supervisors um, can address the way we uh, deal with drugs um, in, in that sense. Right. Because MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelics, is on Mission Street, and they're doing some of the most forward-thinking work um, around using psychedelics to help people with um, a range of mental ailments. And it's something Mm -hmm. that's starting to be taken more seriously on the national level. Uh, The author, Michael Pollan, did a lot for this with his book, How to Change Your Mind, that came out Mm -hmm. last year. Um, There's huge amounts of money that are being put into research around the potential benefits that psychedelics can have for people to get them off of um, off of hard drugs. Because as you as you as we were talking about before, you know, it's we make so much of our decisions based off of identity, how we see ourselves. And um, Mm -hmm. I think that there's real potential in those sectors. Oh, totally. I I agree with you that um you know, rediscovery of the the usefulness of um, of psilocybin and um, kind of all of these other drugs that help you change your mind. I think they're uh, one of the most promising uh, opportunities we have as a society. Is you know, how do we use these things for good? Um, and and yeah, to your point, um, there's a there's a huge opportunity in addiction treatment. I mean. I want to say it was something like uh, 70% of smokers who, um, who, who took uh, mushrooms were able to successfully break their addiction compared to like 7% who use like the patch. Right. I mean, it's just way more effective. I wrote an article about that for Santa Cruz waves and it was um, that stat is correct. And what's, what's more um, when they would report back on why they had remained abstinent for over six months. They would say things that the researchers referred to after a while as dumb moments. So they'd say things mm-hmm. like, well, I realized that smoking hurts your lungs and air is life. And I really decided that I want to live. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. like, yeah, duh. But some right. of those realizations um, can be made deeply with psychedelics. You mentioned the Homeless Garden Project. Um, You mentioned a number of nonprofits around town that are doing good work. 
I think that voting is one of the most important things citizens can do to take back their democracy, um, educate themselves, and then vote in uh, candidates that will represent them. Um, And I also think that in the way that a house can help get someone off the streets and change their identity, I think that volunteering can help citizens change their identity from consumers to active participants in their community. Given the amount of work that you've done with different nonprofits around town, um, learning about all these issues with your campaign, are there any stories that stand out to you um, with particular nonprofits that you have been working with over the last few months? Um. I mean, the most recently, you know, just talking to uh, Laura Marcus, the CEO of Gentes, about how they've made dental care available to so many more people um, is was really inspiring throughout, you know, throughout the county. There's basically 80,000 people that uh, that could be getting dental care that that weren't, um, and they're helping to service um, tens of thousands of those people today. I mean, there's so many nonprofits doing great work. Um, But I also want to address your point of, you know, the opportunity that people have voting. Um, Because recently, um, the civil grand jury in Santa Cruz released a bunch of reports. And this is kind of, um, you know, this is kind of this point of accountability where citizens volunteer to look at how things are working throughout the county and give their assessment. And um, they released a set of reports just back in June, July of this year uh, that basically said things are things are going pretty bad right now. And, you know, to kind of loop this back around to fire, uh, they released one report. It's called Ready, Aim, Fire, uh, Santa Cruz County in the Hot Seat. And I just want to read you a few of these quotes from it because it's sort of I mean, and this came out in July 2020. So last month. Sure. Um, They said. Vegetation and fuel management and abatement are not receiving the attention or funding needed from County of Santa Cruz Board of Supervisors and therefore not adhering to California Government Executive Order 1819. That was the first finding. The second one is Santa Cruz County residents are at increased risk of fire danger due to lack of risk management for wildfire. Specific risks are not formally identified, tracked, or assessed for impact nor is progress reported for, by fire departments in the county. Therefore, leaders responsible for budgets and accountability are left unprepared to manage risk, impact, or performance. And a third finding, city and county officials have not collaborated with PG&E to identify the location of high-risk PG&E electrical equipment, and so are left uninformed as to how to manage their responsibilities or how to instruct residents about potential danger due to proximity to this equipment. So, I mean, you basically have citizens who have volunteered their time raising the alarm saying, hey, this is a huge problem. And, you know, the only opportunity we have as citizens to change this is the election for your county supervisor, which you're going to be getting a ballot for in uh, just over a month. Wow. Yikes. And, <laughs> yeah. And to tie it back to your question, I think you were getting at there with uh, with nonprofits and this like sense of volunteering you know, it comes back to, okay, well, how do we address this massive shortfall in government services? 
right? Because we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it in roads. We're seeing it in health. We're seeing it in homelessness. We're seeing it in housing. How do we, how do we possibly deal with this? I mean, you can't, you can't tax enough. You can't get enough money to do all that. Um, and I think the answer is, well, let's look at what's happening in, in other parts of, of uh, our society and the, and the economy. Um, you know, the biggest hotel chain today doesn't own a single hotel room. It's Airbnb. The biggest cab company today doesn't own a single car. It's Uber. And so in order to be successful, government's going to have to look at just how to connect the resources with the problem. And a lot of the time, the, the resources are going to be citizen volunteers, whether it's folks who want to volunteer to help, uh, you know, uh, patch up a, a pothole or uh, volunteer to help uh, clean brush in their area. Um, we need to create systems for people to be properly incentivized and rewarded for that and to connect them with the place of, of greatest needs. Hmm. What are some examples of that? Do you, do you have any um, stories in other places that have successfully connected citizens with um, issues that they might be able to help on? Actually, one that I'm thinking of right now is my surf sponsor, Patagonia, had a mm -hmm. campaign recently to connect people who had specific skills like web design with nonprofits. Mm -hmm. Nonprofits many times have a lot of um, a lot of folks working there who are good, you know, out in the fields or they're well intentioned. They, un they understand the issue, but they don't necessarily understand something like how to get a big uh, email list together or how to build a kick-ass website or art design. And Patagonia was trying to connect those people who had mm -hmm. highly specific, helpful skills for the world changers out there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we were all developing these, these sort of uh, superpowers, if you will. And we want, when we volunteer, we don't just want to like, whatever, plant a tree we want to use our graphic design skills which are going to have the highest impact uh and meet the biggest need um that's 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 really an awesome example and i think you know the other part of that is um that there's a lot of kind of uh, corporate social responsibility happening where um corporations are organizing their employees to volunteer you know one hour a month or something, you know, give back 1% um, again to the Patagonia model. Um, and so uh, organizations and corporations can become a force for good in, in helping to structure and um, these opportunities and, and uh, help their employees to donate towards all kinds of great causes, including public ones uh, organized by county government. Right. This is a little bit of a separate issue, but I think it's worth just to underscore, and I want to hear your thoughts about it. You know, similarly in the way that where I am right now in Montana, there is a real, or maybe inversely to the way things are in Montana, um, people really want small government here, and anything that mm -hmm. feels like more government is very mm -hmm. difficult to pass. Um in Santa Cruz, people are very um, against corporations moving into town, um, mm -hmm. and it's you. You talk about a a big company coming in, and there will be a kind of backlash on that. But I do know, mm -hmm. for example, that 
the amount of taxes that the that Santa Cruz receives from, for example, Costco, is really significant. Do you have what's your perspective on this issue? I know that's, this is kind of an obtuse question. I'm not asking it super specifically, but do you have any mm-hmm. any general thoughts on this issue that I think is also it's it's just uh, it's a touchy one for people in town. Uh, so to allowing big businesses to come in. Yes. Yeah. So probably the best example of this uh, would actually be the Nissan dealership, which was approved for 41st and SoCal uh, and which also just announced that they weren't going to uh, all build that dealership after all. So in this case, uh, you know, to your point, citizens didn't want them. The majority of citizens didn't want them to come in. Uh, my opponent voted in favor of uh, of allowing them to build on that corner, voted in, uh, despite the feedback from the community and despite the, the plan outlined in the Sustainable Santa Cruz plan, which said, hey, that should, that's a very vital corner, right? For those of you who don't know, SoCal, 41st is the busiest street uh, in our county, and SoCal is right up there. That's one of the one of only three ways you can get across the county. Um, so very important corner, and uh, that's why the sustainable plan said that should really be a mixed-use development uh, with both housing and uh, commercial space uh, down below. Uh, so... My my opponent supported the Nissan dealership yeah. coming in, um, and it, despite what citizens wanted and despite what the Sustainable Santa Cruz plan called for, which was a mixed-use activity center uh, with with uh, with homes as well as uh, some business space, you know, whether it's shops or co-working space, you name it. Um, and so I think that as we look towards the future of the economy in Santa Cruz, it's going to have to be towards that diversification. Um, you know, how do we how do we make our community more walkable, but also have, uh, you know, more little village centers um, and more diversity? And, you know, I don't think that I don't expect uh, like big companies to move to Santa Cruz so much. Um, you know, someone like uh, like Google or whatever, they're not going to move like a, they might have some employees over here, but they're not going to move a major office here. It just doesn't make sense for them. Um, but really, this the strength of Santa Cruz is in all the companies that start right here. You know, I mean, whether it's O'Neill wetsuits or heck Netflix was started here. Um, companies like Santa Cruz organics or Odwalla, um, you know, you name it. Like we, Santa Cruz has started it. I mean, we sequenced the genome first up here, David Hausler at, at UCSC. Um, so there's so much creative potential here. And, and that's why I think it's important to create some of that um, small office space and, and make housing more affordable is because when our community is healthy uh, on just these this basic fundamental levels, uh, we can deliver so much to the, to the world in terms of valuable new products. And I'll just give you one example that I love of something that um, someone's founding here right now, which is called cruise foam, right? This is instead of styrofoam, it, it, it would replace that with um, like basically foam made out of shrimp shells. Um, and so that's a company starting right here in Santa Cruz, uh, which uh, yeah, I'm really excited about. Well, it is a beautiful community that we both love. Uh, I'm happy that we have uh, an intelligent mind like yourself uh, 
willing to hurl yourself into the fray of politics. Thank you. Um, Kyle, I'm, I'm thankful that we have uh, creative, artistic minds like yourself who've connected with so many people, uh, not only in the Santa Cruz community, but all over the world. And uh, yeah, you, you've got so many diverse talents, and I appreciate you uh, putting them to work for the betterment of our democracy today. <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, so where can people learn more about what you're doing, um, and when is the vote coming up? Yeah, so um, probably the, the best way to stay current um, is to follow the campaign on Facebook. It's at Manu for Supervisor or Instagram, also at Manu for Supervisor. And then the, the campaign web page is manukonig.com. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-E-N-I-G.com. Um, you can sign up for our newsletter. And um, as I said, you know, it's going to be an all vote by mail ballot um this year and so uh ballots will go out on october 5th october 5th to 8th they'll be mailed um and uh they're due by november 3rd so uh vote vote early get your friends and family to vote and um vote on it for supervisor thank you sir that's our show. I will link to Monty's website in the description below. I'm going to play you out the song by a local Santa Cruz band called Light the Band. The song is Me and Baby Brother, and I will link to their band in the show notes below as well. And if you're part of a band, you can send your music to info at kyle.surf. Don't forget, that's also where you can send those voice memos that I love getting from you. Just let me know who you are, where you are. Keep it under a minute and email it to info at kyle.surf. Don't forget, you can join the book club on my website, kyle.surf, as well. This month is the way of a superior man. And as always, thank you to Santa Cruz Missiles for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to RPM Training Company. You can go to either of their websites, type in the code name KYLE10. That's KYLE10 at checkout, and you'll get 10% off. And finally, thank you to the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting this podcast. And with that, get out in the water, whatever body of water you are. See you soon.